Several years ago, I had the opportunity to lead a mission trip to a city, a little community right outside of Edinburgh, Scotland called Nidri. It's Nidri Community Church is where we ended up partnering. I had come into contact with the pastor there whose name was Mez McConnell. And he invited me along with some friends of mine from Houston to come and minister alongside him to a very gospel needy area of this country. In Nidri, there's a, a really big housing scheme. That's what they call public housing in Scotland, a housing scheme. And the people who lived in those schemes had a lot of challenges, as you may imagine. They were, there was poverty, drug use, depression. And this church had been planted by another church in order to help reach into this community to help tell them of the hope of the gospel. And to call them to repentance and belief in Jesus. Mez, though, was not the first pastor to lead this church. In fact, when the other church planted this church, uh, the pastor who led that plant decided not to move there. And so he and other members of other churches who were trying to plant this church would just commute in. Because it was the kind of place that they did not want to live. And so because they were not willing to move into Nidri, the people of Nidri saw them as outsiders and treated them as such. And as a result, the ministry was challenged. It did not flourish like they had hoped. In fact, the exact opposite happened. The people of the, the housing community there, the scheme became aggressive toward the church. They began to vandalize the church. They would vandalize cars that were parked outside of the church. In fact, one car was set on fire while it was parked in the church parking lot. But Mez had received a call about his interest in becoming the pastor of this church and a conviction set deeply in his heart that these people needed the gospel and that he was the man to do it. Part of his training was spending several years on the streets of Brazil in Rio de Janeiro, working in very difficult communities, trying to spread the gospel to those Brazilian people. And he felt that the Lord had been using that time to prepare him for even this difficult ministry. And so he received the call and moved his family Family in to the Nidri area invited other people to join him by becoming part of this community. And what God did through Mez and the others, their, their willingness to go into this difficult place was amazing. The gospel took root in this community in a surprising way. People began to hear the gospel and to respond, giving their lives to Christ. And he miraculously set them free from addiction. They found hope through the ministry of this church. And then Mez began to have a vision, a dream for other schemes, other housing schemes in Scotland that led him to start this, this ministry called 20 Schemes, where they would desire and plan to plant churches in all of the housing schemes of Scotland. And I remember vividly the first time I, I heard this story and saw the change unfolding there in Nidri. It was surprising to me, unlike anything I had ever seen. I had, I had not seen the gospel take root in the heart of people in such a way that the evidence could be seen in the community itself. They were being transformed and everything around them was being transformed as well. And it was challenging me because it was not the place that I would have chosen to plant a church. In fact, I probably would have said in my own heart, no, that's too difficult. Those people, they're, they're gonna be too hard to reach. I probably would have been like the first guy 
who said, okay, well, I'll, I'll try to minister there, but I'll keep my family over here and I'll, I'll commute in because it's, it's too hard to move my family there. It's, it's too hard of a place to live. And yet God did something there that was such an evidence of his power that it caused me to think differently about the reach of the gospel and the power of God to save. And it's a lesson I hope that we will receive today as Bayleaf Baptist Church because we need a deep conviction, friends, that our community needs transformation in the exact same way that Nidri needed transformation, that the people who are around us need gospel transformation. Yes, it is true that our problems or the way that sin and brokenness expressed themselves in our area may be different than the way they did in Nidri, but there are problems and brokenness and sin here nonetheless that the gospel needs to be spoken into and addressed. Do we believe, Bayleaf Baptist Church, truly that there are no limits to the reach of the gospel message? Do we believe truly in our hearts there are no limits to the power of God to save? He can change any life. He can transform any hearts. And we need to always be reminded of that as we think about the reach, the potential reach of the gospel and the calling God is placing upon our lives to go win those who do not yet know Jesus. This is a, a lesson we must continually learn. It's a lesson that the early church had to learn. As we'll see in our, our text today, we're gonna to look at Acts chapter eight and Acts chapter 10 as the early church themselves are learning a lesson about the reach and the scope of the gospel. Because in both of these chapters, we see a significant shift in the, the advance of the gospel message that, that they had to recognize and be okay with as they surrendered to the full calling of God upon their lives. And my prayer this morning for us is as we see the surprising advance of the gospel unfold in Acts 8 and Acts 10, as we're reminded of testimonies like Nidri, of the surprising advance of the gospel even today, that we would not limit, we would not in our and our own belief or our own, our own judgment limits the power and potential of the gospel, but rather we would surrender ourselves to what it is that God's calling us to and ask him to work mightily through us for his glory. Now, the first chapter that we're gonna look at this morning is Acts 8. And in that story, the, and in that chapter, there's a story that Luke tells us of the gospel spreading to the Samaritans. To the Samaritans. And it's through the ministry of a guy named Philip. Philip is one of the men who in Acts chapter 6 is set apart by the early church to serve as a deacon. But in Acts chapter 8, it seems like Philip is doing more than simply serving the widows of the Christian community at that time. He is actively preaching the gospel in a place called Samaria. Early in Acts chapter 8, we learned that severe persecution came upon the early church. And as a result of that persecution in Jerusalem, the Christians were scattered through the known world. Some went to Judea. Some, like Philip, went to Samaria. Others, we learn later in the book of Acts, in Acts 11, went to other parts of the known world. 
But as Philip moves into Samaria as a result of this persecution, he does, he's obedient to exactly what God called him to do, what Jesus commanded the early believers to do. And he begins to offer witness to the Samaritan people. Now, this is a surprising development if you know anything about ethnic relations at this time or the story of the Bible to this point. And to help you understand why this move of the gospel moving to the Samaritan people, being proclaimed to the Samaritan people and then responding to this gospel message through repentance and belief is surprising. So who are the Samaritans? Maybe you've heard of them before. Maybe in vacation Bible school, you heard about the, the good Samaritan of Luke chapter 10, or you heard about the Samaritan woman of John chapter four. And those stories are important to us because they themselves are surprising. And what makes them surprising is the exact same thing that makes the spread of the gospel here in Acts chapter eight surprising. The Samaritans were not well liked as a people. At this particular moment in history, they were hated by both Jews and Gentiles. You see, the Samaritans were a racially mixed group of people, partly Jewish and partly Gentile. And they had no place, no home among the Jews or the Gentiles because they were part of each of the worlds and therefore not part, really truly part of either one. And the Jewish people particularly hated the Samaritan people as they thought they evidenced perpetual impurity. They were unclean ethnically. And so the Jewish people rejected them so much so that faithful Jews would travel great distances to go around Samaria to not come into contact with them and, and make themselves become ritually impure. And this natural or this, this division that was in place between Jews and Samaritans grew in the time of Jesus. Because on the other side of the exile, when the Jewish people were coming back into the land of promise and were rebuilding the temple, the Jewish people would not let the Samaritans be a part of the temple rebuilding. And so as a result, the Samaritans built their own temple on Gerizim. But now all those reasons for disdain, all those reasons for division, Philip doesn't seem to be concerned with them. They're not at play in Philip's mind as he goes into Samaria in the dispersion and he simply begins to offer them the same gospel message that had saved him. And the Lord allows him to perform miracles to affirm what he's declaring. And look at the results in Acts 8 verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy, much joy in that city. More than that, there was belief. And people were baptized after repenting and believing in Jesus, according to verse 12. Now the apostles hear about this. And they begin to think, okay, this is unusual, what's happening here in Samaria. We need to go and investigate. And so Peter and John go down to, to see what's taking place. And they are amazed themselves at how the gospel is spreading even among the Samaritan people. Now, yes, there were some 
who are there in Samaria who are more captivated by the power of the signs than the power of the message. But the point here is that the large majority of people in Samaria are hearing the gospel message and believing. And the sincerity of their belief is confirmed by the apostles in verse 17 when they lay hands on these people who are professing belief and they receive the Holy Spirit of God. God allows them to receive the Holy Spirit in a noticeable way, in the same way that that the Jewish Christians had received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to prove to the apostles, to prove to Philip and all the Christians, the Jewish Christians who were looking, that this faith was sincere and they were receiving the same gospel that the Jewish Christians had received. That's the first story that represents a shift or a, a... a key moment in the advance of the gospel. Now, the second one happens in Acts chapter 10. And this shows us the gospel moving not just to the Samaritans, but to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. And this chapter, Luke, tells us of a spirit-led interaction between the apostle Peter and a Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius. Cornelius, the Bible tells us, was a God-fearer. And God called to him in a dream to tell him to send word, a company of men, to go and find this apostle named Peter to come back to him and tell him the message that God had entrusted to him to declare to the nations. And at the same time, or around the same time, God gives Peter a vision, a vision to challenge his perception of how someone comes to be considered clean in the light of the work of Christ, so that When Cornelius' men show up to call Peter to come to his house, he is willing to go. And listen to this incredible interaction between Peter and the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, beginning in verse 24. We're going to read all the way down to verse 48. Here's what the word of God says. On the following day, Peter and the, the men who were sent to get him from Cornelius entered Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them and called them together. He had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in in my house at the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded to us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. What an incredible moment, church, in salvation history. These, these Gentile God fears, a part of, of those the Bible tells us who were far off from the covenant and promise of God, have now been brought near by the very same gospel that saved the apostles by the very same gospel that saved all the Jewish Christians, by the very same gospel that, yes, even saved the Samaritan converts. God is expanding his covenant promises to all people through the work of Christ. All people, even Samaritans, even Gentiles. And what happens here, friends, is simply a taste of what is to come. Because as the, the book of Acts continues, we see this, this foretaste unfold through the ministry of Paul as he takes the gospel all the way to Rome. See, what's happening here and what will happen through the rest of the book of Acts is simply the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That they would be witnesses through Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what happened. Now, let's think about how these stories and the testimony of the surprising advance of the gospel should speak to us during this Multiply initiative. And I want to just focus this morning on three lessons that I believe the Lord is teaching the early church here in Acts 8 and Acts 10 that should be lessons for us that really should provide convictions for us to the core of who we are as we, we think about expanding, multiplying the reach of our ministry toward Creedmoor Road. Lessons that I hope will excite us about the potential for what it is that God wants to do through us. And the first lesson is this. The gospel is for all people. And let me just expand it a little bit more. The gospel is for all kinds of people. The gospel is for all kinds of people. Certainly, one of the major points of these stories is to show Christians from a Jewish background how the gospel was spreading, was that the covenant promises of God in Christ were being made available to people from all nations. To the, Gen to the Jew first, yes, but also to the Gentile. 
and importantly, not through the gates of Judaism, but through the gates of Jesus Christ. And through this intentional expansion of the covenant promises of God, we are, we are seeing redemptive history on display. We're seeing the faithfulness of God to a promise he made way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, to a guy named Abraham. Because that's the passage where, Ab- where God tells Abraham that he will make him, his descendants, into a great nation. A great nation, uh, limitless in number. A nation through which all other nations of the world would be blessed. That blessed nation would bring about a greater blessing and we would all be the recipients of that blessing. And what Acts is showing us, an echo of what we learned in the Gospels, is that Jesus is the greater blessing. That, that God blessed the nation of Israel, made covenant promises to the nation of Israel to bring about the Son, a Savior, through whom all nations would be blessed. Now listen, there are so, so many things that have the potential to divide us as human beings. So, so many things that have the potential to divide us, uh, it, those, those people who live in different nations. Listen, our nationality our ethnicity, our language, our generation, our economic status, our politics, our sports fandom, our opinions about the relationship between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. All these things can divide us if we are not careful. But the point of the gospel, something we talk about often here because we need to be reminded of it and divided times in which we live. The point of the gospel is to unite us beyond what normally divides us. Beyond that, beyond that, the, the call of the gospel is to intentionally cross these normal dividing lines to tell all kinds of people about the universal hope that we have in Christ. The the universal promise, the potential that we have in Christ to all of those who repent and believe in Jesus. The call of the gospel commands us because God is forming for himself a new, surprising, supernatural people for his own possession from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Do we long for this? Do we long for this? Truly, do we long for this? Bayleaf, are we willing? Are we willing to look beyond our own preferences and even our own prejudices to be the kind of church that desires to reach all kinds of people? Because the more diverse we become under the lordship of Christ, the more challenges will come. Because those natural things that divide can creep their way into the people of God. And we have to make sure we remember what unites us, what ultimately unites us. There was a challenge in the early church. When, when, the, when the Gentiles came in, and now we have this wonderful body of Christ with Jew and Gentile, there was division. Some things begin to creep in. An example of this is in the book of Galatians. Through the, 
the Judaizer controversy that takes place and unfolds through a, a confrontation that Paul has with the Apostle Peter. Can you imagine this? The Apostle P- Paul confronting the Apostle Peter. That must have been a moment to behold. But the reason why Paul opposes Peter is because he's, he's kowtowing a little bit to these Judaizers who are saying, these are Jewish Christians who are saying that the Gentile Christians had to first really convert to Judaism before they could actually become Christians. Or they weren't as good of Christians if they didn't observe all of the Jewish customs and traditions and laws. And it created this separation, this break between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and the Galatian church. And Peter seemed to be okay with this. And Peter opposes him because he says, Peter, in doing so, you are, you are leaving the gospel. You're turning your back on the gospel. Listen to how he confronts him in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He didn't want to seem unclean because they weren't abiding by Jewish custom. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, thought a Jew, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because works of the law, through those works, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the the diversity created a tension that Paul had to speak to. But hear me, it ultimately led to the good of the church. It led to clarity. It led to deeper conviction about what ultimately unified them, and that is the lordship of Christ. Here's one of the things that excites me most about our Creedmoor Road property. The opportunity to reach all kinds of people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you just picture the people who drive down 540 every day? Can you just picture the people who drive up Creedmoor Road every day? The nations are moving to Raleigh. All kinds of people are moving to Raleigh and all kinds of people need to hear the gospel message. Will we be the kind of church who is willing to engage all kinds of people for the gospel? I had a a pastor friend challenge his church with this question and I wanted to challenge us today. Here's, Here's what he asked his people. Listen, we know that we're not the church for everybody, but are we a church for anybody? 
We're not the church for everybody. That's fine. But are we a church for anybody? And here's what he means by that. Have we adopted customs? Have we adopted practices that are not of first importance that limit our ability to reach all kinds of people for the gospel? And if challenged, would we release them so that we are reminded that we are ultimately united under the lordship of Christ? Because one of the beauties of the church is her diversity because it highlights this unity of Christ. It's not hard to be unified when you're all the same, when you all think the same way, when you all grew up the same way, when you have the same political opinions. It's hard when those begin to change or we invite people in who have different perspectives or from different nations. And that is the moment when we can confess the ultimacy of the Lordship of Christ in a way that draws glory to him and the sustaining work that he alone can bring. The gospel is for all kinds of people. Secondly, God is constantly repositioning his people to help us accomplish our gospel task. The gospel is for all kinds of people and God is sovereignly, providentially working in the lives of his people to help position us to reach all kinds of people with the gospel. One of the things I love about Acts chapter eight is how accidental all of the events involving Philip seem to be, at least from a human perspective. Because as far as we know, Philip did not intentionally go to Samaria because he had a deep burden for the Samaritan people. That's what it looks like. No, he went because of persecution. He wasn't sent out by the Christians because they had developed a comprehensive Acts 1-8 strategy. They believed the call of God so much. They were thinking about who can we send to Samaria because Jesus said that the gospel is gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Philip, hey, why don't you go to Samaria? That's not what happened here. Persecution came and Philip just happened to go to Samaria, just happened to go to Samaria. And when he went, wherever he went, he was faithful to offer witness. Even though they weren't thinking that way, God was. God was thinking this way. And so the reality is it was God who providentially sent Philip to Samaria as a result of the persecution because God desired for the Samaritan people to know and hear the gospel and respond. I wonder how long it would have taken early Christians to make their way to Samaria, if not for the discomfort they were facing in Jerusalem, despite what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Even the apostles were suspicious about what was taking place and had to go make sure it was a legitimate move of God. And then there's the account of Peter and Cornelius. It took a miraculous vision from God for Peter to be okay with going into a Gentile household. Even though God was saying, I'm gonna send you as witnesses to the nations. God orchestrated events. He positioned his people supernaturally so they could not miss what he was doing. So they could witness the truth of the declaration of Jesus and begin to give their lives to it. I want to suggest this morning that God is doing something similar here at Bayleaf in us during Multiply. I believe God is providentially positioning us 
to be used in a new way for the gospel. And how he is calling us to multiply our ministry to create more road. And this positioning is ultimately good for us. In the same way it was good for the early church. At our advanced commitment night a couple of weeks ago, I told about a conversation I had with a dear brother friend of mine here at the church who was talking to me about the way the Lord's been moving in his life. And he said to me, Jared, I just don't want to continue to go through the motions of church. I just don't want to show up on Sunday, go to worship, go to Bible study. I, I want to be a part of a move of God. And I encouraged him and I said, brother, that's really a prophetic statement because what is true of you, that prayer that you're praying should really be a prayer for our whole church. Because it is true that we could continue to do what we've always done here. And my guess is God would honor a lot of those ministry convictions because we do a lot of good ministry here. And we see the fruit of it even today, right? We have testimony, we've got baptisms happening. The Lord is doing a wonderful thing here at Bayleaf, but what if he is positioning us to even do a greater work? Something that we could not imagine, something that stretches us in a way that calls us to radical faith. I, I long for our church to be a part of a movement of God like that. What I, what I witnessed firsthand in Scotland. I, I long for God to, to step in, to make his presence and his power so evident among us as a people because he is doing a work that cannot be explained by human means. And what a joy that would be to be a part of something like that. Can you, can you even see now how God has been positioning us since 2005 for 18 years to be ready at the exact right moment to do a new work and be a part of a new work over at Creedmoor Road. And thirdly, the gospel is for all kinds of people. God's positioning us providentially, sovereignly to help, to help us accomplish this gospel task. And finally, the third lesson is we must be willing to send out some of our best to further the call of reaching the nations for Jesus. This final lesson I want to take from the book of Acts is how the church did begin to think strategically. While it's true that in Philip's time, they weren't thinking maybe intentionally, they finally get it. And they finally get the gospel for all kinds of people. And then they begin to act with intentionality to send out their best for the sake of reaching the nations with the gospel. And we see this in Acts 13 to the, the witness of the church of Antioch. I'm just gonna read the first three verses of Acts 13 here. Here's what the Bible says. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, as I read these names, tell me the ones you know, that you've heard a lot about. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. The only two I know really outside of this passage are Barnabas and Saul, right? Is that true for most of us in this room? But listen to what the church in Antioch did. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church in Antioch got it. The gospel is for all kinds of people. And the Lord's been positioning us to be used for his kingdom purposes by giving us all of these wonderful pastors and teachers, these prophets, and he's calling us now to send out some of our best to multiply the reach of our ministry beyond Antioch to other parts of the known world. And they did it. They sent out Paul and Barnabas. And look, and look at what God did as a result of it. The gospel is meant to go forth and it is meant to go forth through the people of God. Here's the reality, church. As we recognize God's calling upon our church, as we sense by the Spirit's movement that he's been positioning us for this move to faithfulness on Creedmoor Road, we need to ask ourselves if we are willing to send out our best, if we're willing to give our best. That's another aspect to the call to be generous as a people, which we talked about last week. Certainly we are to, to be generous financially, but we're also called to be generous with our resources, to be generous with our people. And it's our hope that when we get ready to, to launch and multiply this second campus, that we're gonna send out a tithe, a tenth of our people to form the seed, the foundation of that new campus. And that will be a good thing for us. It'll be a good thing for us. And so would you even now begin praying about whether or not God's calling you to be a part of that seed or if he's calling you to stay here so that seed can go? Because we wanna be willing to give our best and be used to, to allow our gifts to be used so that our best can be sent. What an opportunity for us to evidence that we are taking the gospel seriously. What an opportunity to act out of conviction, strategically with wisdom for the glory of God. I wanna be a part of this kind of surprising movement of the gospel. What about you? Now, if we think about our response today, let me just offer a few responses for us to pray through and think through as people. And the first response, the first opportunity to respond is this, is the opportunity to respond that we give every week here at Bayleaf Baptist Church. In our text today, in Acts chapter 10, Galatians chapter two, we've heard the gospel proclaimed. We've heard what God has done for us in Jesus. That salvation is not through the law. Salvation is only in Christ. The gate of faith, the gate of salvation is Jesus. And while that news is available to everyone. It must be acted upon in repentance and belief. So here's my question to you today. Have you repented and believed in Jesus for salvation? Have you entered to the gate of Christ to be restored to right relationship to God now and for all of eternity? If you haven't, would today be the day of your salvation? In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to encourage you, pray with you. If you're hearing the gospel proclaimed today and the Lord is leading you to respond in faith. Now for the rest of us who've already given our lives to Christ, let me offer you two different ways to respond. First, would you pray that God would give us as a church a heart for all kinds of people? 
Would you pray that God would, would give us a commitment to reaching all kinds of people so that our collective witness as a people can bring glory to the unifying lordship of Christ? Are we a church for anybody? And then finally, would you also pray that when the time comes, we would be willing to send out some of our best to multiply the reach of our church, to reach all kinds of people for Christ. And what role, what role we could take in that work. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Ask God to move and work. Father, we thank you for how you've spoken to us through your word. And God, may we now respond in a way that's faithful and brings us into greater faithfulness. If there's someone here or watching online today that doesn't know you, God, would you move in their heart and call them to yourself lead them to a place of repentance and belief and to salvation. What a gift you've given us in Christ. And may we as the people not hold that gift, but share it with the nations as you've called us to. And may we be faithful to sense how you are positioning us as a people and walk in obedience, being generous in every way, to be a blessing in every way, as you've called us to. Find us faithful, we pray as we respond in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.